This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Are you one of the Matildas' newest fans? Like, you didn't really care about football or even sport earlier this year, but you got swept up in World Cup fever. Because we know the hype around the Tillies was labelled historic, groundbreaking at the time, but a couple of months on, where are we at? And what has actually changed for women's sport? We're going to be checking in with the Matildas as they gear up for Olympic qualifying. Later, the rise of DIY weddings. Why are so many young Australians turning their back on big, expensive events? First, though. Hack. Following a week of silence, they're in shock and grieving the loss of the referendum. On Triple J. Yeah, it's been more than a week since Australia voted no in the Voice to Parliament referendum, and it was an overwhelming no. Every state and territory except the ACT. At the time, many Indigenous leaders announced a week of silence. They wouldn't be speaking to the media, to other people they wanted to grieve to reflect on what had happened. Well, that's ended now, and those who campaigned hard for the yes vote are speaking about what happened in the campaign, their reflections, and what the focus is for them now. One of those is Thomas Mayo. He was one of the biggest faces of the Yes campaign, and he's with us now. Thomas Mayo, thanks for coming on Hack. No worries, Dave. Happy to be here. A week on from the referendum, how are you feeling? Well, I'm still feeling gutted. It's like an empty pain in my chest, like an emptiness, Uh, a loss, you know, a loss of an opportunity. So much hard work was put into it. It was an invitation to the Australian people to accept Indigenous peoples, our culture, our heritage, but that has been dismissed now and it was a hurtful thing on the 14th of October. You and other Indigenous leaders marked a week of silence. Can you explain to listeners why that was important? Well, there was a call from various Indigenous leaders to just give us some time to reflect, to mourn, to think about what's next and just be with our families. But, uh, you know, as we do, we have dusted ourselves off in that time and we're working hard to find the next steps to end the entrenched disadvantage that has existed for as long as colonisation in this country. And certainly our fight for justice will continue and, and that something that people can expect. A lot of people are focusing on what went wrong with the Yes campaign, and I guess even during that week of silence, there were politicians speaking about it, others. Where do you think it went wrong? Oh, there's all all sorts of internal questioning about, you know, what I could have done better personally. I don't think any campaign is perfect, and, you know, if I'm completely honest, I think that we could have done some things better in the campaign. Uh, But what I do know is that we tried really hard. We threw everything at it. I also, in reflection, I don't think any of us should ignore that Trump-like disinformation campaign, a campaign that was at a whole new level of dishonesty and fear-mongering. And that, I think, was the ultimate downfall of the referendum. And I, I hope that the analysis looks to those who aspire to leadership, you know, uh, the opposition leader is one. It was all about politics and not about the national interest and certainly not about improving outcomes for Indigenous people. There are a lot of people out there who are probably thinking, well, 
The Yes campaign does need to take a lot of responsibility. This was a missed opportunity. The campaign started too slow. It didn't reach enough people in those outer suburban areas. Do you accept that there'd be a lot of people who voted yes who might be really angry with the way the campaign was run and and the result? Oh, look, I'm part of the Yes campaign. I accept the the responsibility of, of being a leader in that. With such leadership comes, you know, the criticism uh, when you don't quite achieve what you set out to achieve. So I can accept all of that. But what I want to say to people is, you know, don't give up. We've got to learn the lessons from it, as I certainly will, uh, and and take this fight forward for justice. Do you think the vote should have been delayed, that it was the right time, that there was enough time to get that message out to people all across the country, especially outside of the city areas, of what exactly this was and and what it would mean going forward? Firstly, if we called for a delay and the government postponed it, uh, we wouldn't have known when we would have had a referendum. And, you know, political experts were saying, you know, it might not come up again. So with the gap widening, uh, we had to take that opportunity. Uh, You just don't know who will be elected next time. Uh, You don't know if there'll be a change in leadership. These things can happen. And and it's a very rare opportunity that we had um, to take it to the people. And so we had to back ourselves. And we did, but we just, we didn't get there. Now we know where we stand. You spoke about opposition leader Peter Dutton, the coalition's campaign for the no vote. What about the progressive no campaign? Do you think that confused a lot of people as well? I think it might have confused some people. I I wouldn't say it didn't cause any damage because I think we can see with the attacks on treaty processes now in in Queensland, that is the mandate that those that oppose any Indigenous rights are trying to use now to try and wind things back. And uh, I don't see the leaders of the progressive no making any headway now that this has gone down. Quite the opposite. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Thomas Mayo, who was one of the leaders of the Yes campaign a week on from the Voice referendum. Thomas, where to from here? That's the question a lot of people are going to be asking. Where do you start from? What are you and the other yes advocates going to focus on going forward? Well, uh, myself and many Indigenous leaders realistically only had a a day off myself and got stuck into working on, on what's next. People can expect to see, you know, us reach out to all of those supporters, the millions of people that voted yes, to let them know how they can continue to walk with us. Um, And I say to people that if they voted no and, um, you know, they didn't vote no from a position of a darkness in their heart to consider why they voted no, to look at who might have disinformed you that what you might have believed that isn't true and make amends by joining uh, a movement to see um, the end of entrenched disadvantage of Indigenous people. Because there are a lot of people in this country. I mean, 60% of the country voted no. And many of those who did say they do have a real problem with being labelled racist for not agreeing to this proposal. How do you respond to that? This is one of the things that was effective disinformation from the no campaign. None of the leaders of the yes campaign ever accused any Australian of being racist if they voted no. Uh, But we saw a lot of headlines even where we were correcting the record, making it seem as if we were saying that. 
it was uh, never true that Indigenous leaders of this campaign have said, if you vote no, you are racist, because we understand that people have uh, many other priorities in their life. They, a lot of people didn't think about it until the last minute, and they might have been led to fear something that was completely false. Nobody was ever going to lose their backyard or farm or their kids lose their place in school because Indigenous children would, you know, take their spots or get um, charged a fee to go to the beach. Uh, all of those things were complete lies. People voted no for various reasons, but what's important now is that those that voted yes, those supporters, continue to have conversations as if we're still in a referendum campaign to show people the truth of this, to show people the truth of our history, the truth of what has been done to Indigenous people, the truth of the failures in policy in recent times that continue and, and ask them to think about who they vote for at future elections and, and to never reward those that lied to, to us um, about those things. Do you think we'll ever see constitutional recognition of First Nations people? I, I doubt we will in my lifetime, but I never give up hope of achieving everything that we can. The Prime Minister's closed the door to legislating a voice. Do you think there should be a legislated voice, though? I think that would be a good thing. I don't know if that's what's next, because I think it's up to a, a larger collective of Indigenous leaders to, to decide. But I would say, personally, that that would be something that would be a good thing. The logic of establishing a voice continues to be the best way that we can address the inequalities and to be more effective in getting better outcomes in our communities, that, that still is complete common sense. There are some young First Nations leaders who've said over the past week, well, look, this changes things. It spells the end of reconciliation. It marks a new era in how First Nations people in this country communicate with the rest of Australia. There needs to be a shift here. What are your thoughts on that? I don't disagree that we should be as loud and, and proud as, as ever. If anything, we should be louder. Though we need to understand the things that have been tried and what hasn't worked. We need to understand the world as it is, so what is possible. We need to be realistic in our campaigning because we don't want to make things worse. Thomas Mayo, can I ask what kind of personal impact this has had on you because during the campaign, you in particular were subjected to some really personal attacks. How has it been coming to terms with that and dealing with it even now in the aftermath? Oh, well, life is very different. There were all sorts of threats throughout the campaign, but I understood that a lot of it was an attempt to intimidate me and to silence me. Did you expect uh, that going in, that it would be that brutal? Not that brutal, no. I, I knew that it would happen. But you see, what I hope people begin to realise is the intensity and just how toxic it was, was to a level that this country hasn't seen in a political campaign before. I was certainly one of the main targets, not the only one. But they tried to bring down through hordes of social media trolls and bots and, you know, it's taken its toll, but... Um, just put more fire in my belly to continue to, to fight for what's right. And what's right is that Indigenous people should be listened to when decisions are made about us and we should be recognised because we've been here for more than 60,000 years, um, the oldest continuing civilization on the planet. That should be recognised and we should be proud of it. Because I imagine there's probably people listening thinking, 
if that was me and I'd been through something so intense at times, such a toxic experience, I'd probably want to step back and say, oh, that's it, I've done my bit. That doesn't sound like your path, Thomas. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows why, mate, but I just, I just can't walk away from an injustice I've never been able to and there's no greater injustice than what has been done to Indigenous people and also what was done throughout that referendum, the disinformation campaign. You know, I cannot walk away from that injustice and I hope that more and more people join us, always buoyed by, you know, since the 14th of October by the amount of young people that voted yes. Um, and I say to them, you know, don't be deterred from seeking justice from Indigenous people. Uh, walk with us and, um, and be louder and prouder in that. Well, it's been a huge road for you. We appreciate you speaking with us as always. Thomas Mayo, thank you for joining us on Hack. Thanks a lot, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And on the text line, a different reaction. Someone says it's not a feeling uh, of darkness in the hearts or racism. It's the fact that nothing other than a vague a promise of hope was on offer. Someone else. Thanks, Thomas and all of the other Yes Advocates. Stand tall and be proud of what you've done for Mob. And I support your call for us to continue to push for justice. Someone else says we voted no because it's basically a very bad idea. And then someone else, thank you for your inspiring words, Thomas. A lot of people do want to see better outcomes for First Nations people. Please don't lose hope. That was from Georgie in Hobart. Hack. You want to also give the fans an opportunity to say thank you to the Matildas who performed at the World Cup and to see their heroes. On Triple J. It's hard to believe the Women's World Cup was already months ago. Although I guess so much has happened since then. World's changed quite a bit. It did seem like a much simpler time. There was just one story we had on our minds those months ago. It was the Matildas. Everyone was obsessed with football, the Tillies. We were saying this has changed women's sport in Australia for good. So what change have we seen? And has that momentum continued in the sporting world? Is the same passion still there as our women's team gears up for the Olympics? In a bit, we're going to speak to an expert, a writer who's, you know, looked at the Matildas so extensively over the years. But first, here's April McLennan with a bit of an update. And here's Sam Kerr. She's going to need some support. Kerr running at Bright. Kerr with a shot. Oh, I say it's incredible! Screaming at the telly, donned in green and gold. Can write the Matildas into history. These were the moments that gripped the nation earlier this year when the Matildas took Australia by storm at the Women's World Cup. Tilly's fans, you were absolutely incredible tonight. We heard you, we felt you, we're going to the semi-finals. The game sold out stadiums, saw record ratings and turned players into household names. I'm really happy that I'm named Matilda and um, I really like them. I'm really liking watching Claire Hunt and a lot of the newer players and then also Alana Kennedy just as a centre back myself. Ellie Carpenter, just the way she like shuts down the ball from the opposition, just iconic really. And while our girls obviously didn't win the World Cup, everyone in Australia was super proud. A lot of girls around the country will be very inspired by the Matildas, you know, because of their grit and determination. 
Now they've pulled the boots back on in Perth for Thursday's Olympic qualifier, where they'll go head-to-head with Iran. Matilda's veteran Emily Van Egmond says the team won't be taking anything for granted. I think it's something special to be able to create history with this amazing team. We look to build on that now, coming together again. It's going to be great to see everyone catch up. Everyone's been in Cobblands, having their own thing going on. So, yeah, to be able to come together again here in Perth, like I said, it's, it's, it's good for us to be able to play on home soil. They've got three games to play as part of this round of qualifiers to make it to Paris. The Matildas will also face off against the Philippines and Chinese Taipei. Only the winner of the group is guaranteed to advance. Again, we've got a job to do this window. Um, three important games for us and we'll be looking to hit the ground running. Obviously, to qualify is the, the first thing. It's, it's not easy. Every nation's getting stronger and stronger um, each year. So for us, like I said, to take this window, um, you know, three competitive games, Um, and the end goal is obviously to be there uh, in Paris. Coming off the back of their fourth place finish at the World Cup, the Matildas are actually favourites to defeat all three lower ranked teams. Go Matildas! Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update. She's stoked about this week's matches, everything that's to come. What about you? Are you still following the Tillies closely, keeping updated, watching all your sports news? Message in 0439757555. I want to delve more into that momentum now, what we can expect in the months and years ahead. Dr Fiona Crawford is the author of a book about the Tillies. It's called The Matilda Effect. She's with us now. G'day, Fiona. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hello, thanks for having me. Can we expect, do you reckon, a similar kind of energy and momentum around the Tillies as they gear up for the Olympics next year? Yes, absolutely. I think it's been just enough time. Or we've, I know we've been missing it terribly since the Women's World Cup finished. We, it kind of ended and we all went, what do we do next? The, uh, the A-League Women's, as it's now called, has just kicked off. So that's filling a little bit of the gap. But, yeah, we're all really looking forward to those games. And particularly Sam Kerr is going to be playing in her home state of WA, which she doesn't get to do very often. So you can expect, uh, I think, Beatles mania equivalent happening over there in coming days. Because I guess there is that risk in people's head because it was built up so much during the World Cup that we could lose a bit of the momentum progress that was talked about. Do you think that is a bit of a risk? Yeah, I mean, the pressure that they're under... It's unlike anything they've seen before. I mean, to go from being relatively anonymous, they moved through the world quite anonymously. Now players like Courtney Vine, who obviously scored that winning penalty that stopped the nation. I mean, she can't even walk down the street now with people, you know, not tooting their horns or pulling up to take photos with her. So it's quite wild, the attention that they're receiving and the, yeah, like you're saying, the heightened expectations. That said, they're pretty, they're pretty humble. They've some of the players are playing in now the top leagues around the world, so they are getting a little bit more used to that attention. And they've got a bit of a sense of humour. I mean, you probably saw on social media that Sam Kerr wore a T-shirt that's been designed for Mackenzie Arnold, uh, that being her, her being a brick wall of a goalkeeper during those penalty shootouts. So they're, they're under pressure, but they also are maintaining that sense of humour and perspective. So I think, you know. Swings and roundabouts, but they'll, they'll be okay, I think. For sure. Even a member of the hack team who uh, bumped into one of the Tillies recently on a plane was just completely overwhelmed with emotion, just couldn't deal <laughs> with being in their presence. And it, it is huge. I wonder whether you think that's going to affect um, Australia's expectation 
you know, we're happy that everyone has a go, does their best, but do you think the real criticism could start to creep in if they're not winning as much, as many matches as people are expecting, the kind of um, real intensity that can come with sport? Absolutely. We saw that even when they were struggling to make it out of the group. Obviously, they came out and then had that blinder of a game against Canada 4-0 was the result. But yeah, if they had not won that group stage game, we could already see the tide was turning, particularly from some of the conservative media. So yeah, there will come criticism of the players over time. I think as long as we can keep it in perspective, what we know is that they have succeeded in spite of not having any kind of resources. So it's been pure um, hard work on the part of the players and all the staff behind the team. So I just hope that if they do lose or if they are starting to lose some of that momentum, that we it is tempered with the understanding that we've got to actually invest in this team and they're not going to be able to win or continue winning if unless we're really supporting women's sport as a whole. And in terms of women's sport as a whole, what do you think needs to be the focus now, Fiona? Like we saw people signing up in record numbers, warnings. We don't even have the uh, facilities to deal with this huge burst of interest in football particularly. Do you think that Australia needs to have a real focus here on how it grows women's sport and the interest in it? Yes, this this post-World Cup era is probably even more crucial than the World Cup. They had such a successful tournament. We need to make sure that that's sustained and that, you know, you don't want to use the term legacy because that is so overused. But, yeah, this is probably a more crucial time because the danger is that the, the attention and the money could go away. I will say, though, it's been really exciting to see not just the Matildas but all of the uh, many of the other women's sports also stepping up. So you can feel that there's a bit of a shift uh, we saw, obviously, the Wallaroos came out with a letter a few days after the World Cup ended talking about how their conditions were not great. We know the netballers won the World Cup and didn't receive any pay for it. We've just seen the cricketers step up and create a fighting fund for the netballers. So, yeah, I mean, there's some really interesting stuff happening in the space. Obviously, you want the government to step up and fund and, and really support it and things like um, television rights, all those kinds of things are in the mix, but it's really nice to see at least the other players and um, stepping forward and not allowing uh, governments or administrators to shirk their responsibilities. I reckon as well it's so nice to see all of the sustained interest people who thought, oh, after the World Cup, I'm probably not going to be so hooked on, you know, football or whatever, but they're still watching and we're hearing from those people loud and clear now on the text line. Fiona Crawford, writer of The Matilda Effect, appreciate you coming on, breaking all that down. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. And someone on the text line says, you know, I hope people keep the same energy for AFLW as they did for the Tillies. It sucks sometimes going to games and seeing the small crowds. We'll keep you posted. Hack. DIY weddings are in full swing again. On Triple Jack. Have you ever thought about what your wedding might look like? It could be the furthest thing from your mind right now. You're thinking wedding? Or maybe not. You've been planning it for ages. You want all the bells and whistles. Or you couldn't think of anything worse. You're not wasting your hard-earned cash on just one day. Everyone has really different takes on weddings and how they should be celebrated, if they should be celebrated. A lot of young people are finding different ways to make the big day special. And that includes having a DIY wedding, like getting all your friends and family to pitch in and help. Makes sense with cost of living pressures. 
You know, a, a lot of people are doing this. I want to hear your stories. If you had a DIY wedding or maybe you helped out with a mate, how was it? Was it worth the stress, all of the hard work? Message in 0439757555. Shalala Madora has been speaking to a few people who've done it themselves. At the end of last year, Mary Grace Quigley and her family got the worst possible news. My dad was diagnosed with cancer and given just a couple of months to live. Mary and her partner had been together for years, but the cost of a big wedding put them off tying the knot. That was just something that was like absolutely pushed onto the back burner. When Mary's dad got sick, her priorities changed really quickly. I just really, really want all of our parents to be able to be at the wedding. At first, the pair thought they'd do a quick registry job. But the registry was booked out until I think it was May. So instead, they decided to have it in their own backyard with just a week's notice. We had to get special legal permission to be able to do the wedding at all at such short notice. And when Mary's friends and family heard the circumstances, people just put their hands up to help in any way they could. Her cousin did the photography, her in-laws brought glassware and chairs, another friend brought a cake, even the food was taken care of. We had a friend who'd had, it was a Christmas time, so he had had an event where he had all this leftover meat from some family, big family event, and he ended up doing a massive barbecue for us. Mary and her husband only paid for a bit of the photography and for the celebrant. There were about 50 guests all up, but the guest of honour... Mary's dad was central to it all. He had a really good time and it made me so happy to see him be there. I couldn't think of a better wedding than the way it actually turned out to be. It was really, really perfect. Mary's situation is pretty unique, but more and more people are considering DIY weddings for one big reason, cost. It was extremely difficult to save for a wedding while we weren't working. Matilda Dixon-Smith and her now husband got royally screwed by COVID. After putting off their wedding twice due to lockdowns, Matilda and her partner decided to cut corners and have a paired back wedding. So we decided to buy our own alcohol and have what's called a dry bar, which is where they just provide bar staff and glasses and things like that and serve the alcohol that we provide. And that was a huge, huge money saver. Matilda made her own dress, her husband's band played the music and friends set up the lighting. And the bridal party planned and made the table decorations, saving them big money. We were quoted a couple of thousand dollars for the table decorations and we did it for about $250. And Matilda's sister stepped up in a massive way. So she actually went to TAFE on her own dime and became a marriage celebrant so that she could marry me and also my little sister who got married later in the year. Matilda said while heaps of her friends and family contributed, they were aware of not asking too much. We tried to limit the amount that we were asking people to do. Which, as this next story highlights, is probably a good thing. Because let's face it, working on someone else's wedding isn't everyone's cup of tea. I was recruited to help out the night before the wedding and the days after. This is someone we'll call Jasmine. She doesn't want us to use her real name because, well, you'll see. It was my sister-in-law's wedding. Jasmine did a lot for this DIY wedding. Flowers. That was the night before the wedding. Setting up of the hall. Fairy lights and put out all of the, set all the tables and everything. Washing all of the plates and the glasses. The outdoor area and the decor and everything for the open bar. After working for days, they then had to pack it all up. 
a small group of friends and family went back to the site, had to take down everything that we put up the days before. Again, wash all of the, the plates, the glasses, the cutlery, pack all of that up, clean the hall. The worst part was that most of the work fell to the women. The difference between the way that I enjoyed the wedding and my partner enjoyed the wedding. He'd sort of done a few little bits on the edges and came in really fresh and had a lot of fun. And I was sort of wiped out from doing two days of event management. Jasmine has this word of advice for people who are considering asking their friends and family for help with their wedding. DIY is a good idea if you think your time is free and the time of your friends and your family is free, but realistically it's not. Like that's a cost as well, your labour. Look, we just need to go back to Mary's story for a moment because it wasn't just the guests at the wedding who wanted to help out. My sister-in-law was there and she was talking to her boss about the wedding. Turns out the boss's brother is one of the leading neck surgeons in the country. When he got wind of the circumstances of Mary's wedding, he was really moved. He ended up giving us his personal phone number to contact him and he ended up doing surgery for my dad and saving his life. Yeah, so we got married and my dad's okay. (laughs) Hack on Triple J. Oh, what an ending. Shalala Medora with that story. So much good stuff in there. People getting in touch with their experiences. Someone says, my partner and I just got married last Sunday. We pretty much went for lunch with two friends. And our celebrants signed some papers, said some things, ate some food, drank, was perfect. Hey, that's all you need, apparently. Other people, DIY weddings are fine as long as you aren't going to be fussy with the results. I had a friend who went full bridezilla over her $1,000 wedding. Hey, it's, you know, it doesn't matter the cost. It's just the attitude, right? Someone else, Matt, says, we had a surprise wedding, got everyone around in the backyard, made it really relaxed, had a good time. And someone else says, I was a chef and my wife and I had a wedding for 150 people. Uh, Myself and another chef did all the catering. The only hitch was that I'd forgotten my pants. So someone had to go get them. So look, you've always got something. There's always got something that's going to stuff up. If you want to learn more about that, uh, hear more about those stories, you can check out Hack's Instagram. There's a whole lot more detail there. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.